that Jesus himself said that he did not come to do away with the law. This is the Adventist Pilgrimage Podcast with your hosts, Michael Campbell and Greg Howell. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Adventist Pilgrimage Podcast. We have uh, had a great summer with lots of different stuff going on. I know Michael's been traveling and both have points. Yeah, yeah. All the different camp meetings and a lot of good stuff. Uh, I've spent some, some much needed rest time up in the Pacific Northwest just in the last couple of weeks doing some traveling and stuff. So, um, But we are not forgetting our faithful listeners on the Adventist Pilgrimage podcast. We have still got Absolutely. things to talk about. We have actually, it's been kind of fun because I've noticed, Michael, in your traveling and even in some of my traveling, people have started giving us stuff or we've we found things. And I, I'm pretty sure those are going to come up with some some episodes here in the next I few so too. Uh, months. Some very nice surprises that I uh, didn't even know were out there. So we have to tantalize yeah. our listeners, uh, but but we have a few things coming up around the corner. Unknown ephemera. That is that is usually our goal in this kind of stuff. So. <laughs> anyway. Today we have uh, a special this, guest, don't we? Exactly. And that's what I'm kind of excited about. This is not an unknown person. Uh, this is Dr. Brian Strayer, who has written a fas- fascinating book on one of the early Adventist pioneers uh, who kind of gets mentioned at one point in early Adventist history, and then you don't hear about them again. They're one of those guys that kind of just shows up, makes his his contribution, and then fades out. And what what I'm excited about today is that Dr. Strayer has pulled back the curtain a little bit on this fellow um, and shown us how much more is really going on here with a brand new book that is out. So, um, Michael, you know Dr. Strayer a little bit better, and I figure I'll just let you introduce, but it's going to be a good one today. Absolutely. So a special welcome to Brian Strayer as a guest for this episode. And uh, where do I begin, right? So, (laughs) but he's an old family friend. And we go back to when uh, Heidi and I were in, in grad school, uh, young grad students that uh, we kind of adopted him would come over to his house where uh, to go listen to uh, to watch West Wing and enjoy some good Michigan uh, apple cider in the evenings Mm-mm. and uh, lots of lots of fun times. The other thing is I knew that Brian Strayer, having taught in the history and political science department for for many years, uh, he was uh, I, I guess you would say he's a legend at uh, at Andrews in the undergrad program and teaching. And I knew that his class in Adventist history was was just like it was epic. It was one of those things. You and I was in seminary, but I thought, you know, maybe, maybe uh, Brian might not mind if I would just kind of sit in his class and just watch a master teacher at work. And uh, that was one of my great joys is just to sit in his class and hear someone that loved both teaching and also who uh, both loves Adventist history. So and I think that's uh, so welcome, Brian, and um, comes eminently qualified as a historian, his background also not only in Adventist history, teaching that, but many other topics. His dissertation was uh, he specializes in French history, early modern history, uh, and many other things. I mean, I could go on, but uh, so, Brian, welcome. Tell, tell us a little bit about your interest in Adventist history. How did that get started for you? Well, actually, it began while I was a teenager, Mike, because I grew up in upstate New York, mm-hmm. Union Springs Academy there. And uh, I think it was my junior year, we had a textbook 
uh, called The Story of Our Church. Mm -hmm. As I studied that textbook, I began to notice that many of the early pioneer places and people mm -hmm. actually came from my area of upstate New York. And so that kind of planted a seed of interest for me. And then in 1974, after I had finished my master's degree in history at Andrews, Dr. Richard Swartz, at that time the chair of the department, asked me to be his research assistant for the textbook Light Bears to the Remnant that he was preparing uh, for college level denominational history. So even Classic. though my name is not anywhere in the book, I was the one that did the research, took the notes that he used to write that book. A lot of the legwork we say that grad students do, I right? Think it's the grad, uh, <laughs> yes, I did. Uncredited, uncredited heroes of the books. <laughs> yes, yes. And today, of course, I live only two blocks from the Center for Adventist Research there at James White Library. So it's like living next to a gold mine for Adventist primary sources. <laughs> Absolutely. By the way, some of our listeners may, may be interested, and we may have some from New England or upstate New York. Uh, in addition to your other work, uh, something very unique, I think very special, is you've written a history of Union Springs Academy, I think even an update to it, haven't you? That is true, yes. I just finished this summer the centennial history mm -hmm. of Union Springs Academy, which covers it from mm -hmm. 1921 to 2021, and that will be available at uh, Alumni Weekend in the third week of September of this year. It's a major work, 450 pages all together. Wow. There's, so not, we're there's not talking about uh, Adventist historiography. There's a lot of different kinds. You have these broad surveys, like the textbook that you helped Schwartz with. You have biographies. We're gonna talk about your biography here in just a minute, uh, but also this kind of, uh, I guess you'd say like a local history kind of thing. And, and these are all very valid ways of doing history, right? That's right. That's right. Very few people do institutional history, uh, particularly academy history. To my knowledge, our Center for Adventist Research only has about six uh, academy histories, including. Yeah, I was going to say that's a that's yeah. a rare one to pull out. That's great. Yeah, including uh, one centennial history, and that is uh, Indiana Academy here in the Lake Union. So not many people do that kind of history. It's a labor of love. Yeah, the kind of thing where, I mean, you can see that personal connection, you having gone there as a student right. years ago, and then bringing that back is a, it's really a gift. That's a gift uh, to, to that institution. That's, that's very special. Well, let's get into the biography for today that you're, that we're here to talk about just became available. Um, I know that you've been working on it. So I had a sneak peek of it some time ago. And I know when I read it at that point, thoroughly enjoyed uh, just having my eyes opened when, when someone can go in depth. But, but start us out by, by telling us, you know, for someone that's listening and maybe uh, is not as familiar with Adventist history, they may, maybe they've heard of Hiram Edson before, maybe they haven't, but, but why should Adventists today care about Hiram Edson? Well, as you mentioned, he typically comes in in 1844 and then fades from view shortly thereafter. But in reality, Hiram Edson was a key player in the transitional period from the Millerite movement of 1844 to the formation of the General Conference in 1863. His, his peak contributory era 
I would say, is the 1850s. And so I, I would say that we need to focus on him outside of 1844 because he did so much for the mm. early Sabbath-keeping Adventist church. Um, secondly, I would say that because he and Oral Crozier as well helped to uh, solidify our beliefs in the Seventh-day Sabbath and in the sanctuary message, he is important, particularly in the 1844 to 46 era. Mm -hmm. uh, another good reason is because he himself was a deacon, a licensed minister, and later in the 1870s, an ordained minister. And as such, he helped to establish some of our earliest Adventist congregations in New York and Pennsylvania which in the early years were tied together as, as one conference uh, in the 1860s to 1890s. Uh, so he's a key organizer. Um, I think another good reason, as I bring out in uh, chapter seven, ministerial partners of my book, uh, James and Ellen White handpicked Hiram Edson mm -hmm. as what we might call a ministerial uh, trainer. Uh, he trained Jan Andrews in mm -hmm. his 20s. He trained Jan Lupro when Lupro was in his 20s. And uh, he worked alongside some of the senior evangelists as well, Joseph Bates, uh, John Byington. So he's a collaborative, cooperative, uh, teaching um, minister figure here. And I think, <clears throat> fifthly, because Edson is unique. Mm -hmm. in many ways. Um, he's a numerologist. He loves numbers, particularly mm -hmm. if they have some prophetic significance for him. Yeah. Uh, he's a symbologist. He seems to be able to find symbols behind every Old Testament bush, so to speak. <laughs> uh, he's charismatic. Now, there's something we don't usually associate with a, with a sheep farmer, but Hiram Edson, as we will develop in our discussion, I'm sure, uh, had what he called presentments, and uh, he, he believed that these were um, divine uh, insights that would help him understand events that were soon to come uh, to pass. And then uh, on the negative side, toward the end of his life, I, I would simply define him as somewhat of a curmudgeon. Uh -huh. He's a little hard to get along with. He stops going to church for a while, uh, he is out of favor with some of the leading church uh, uh, brethren, and uh, toward the end of his life, he's kind of under a cloud. Yeah. But we need to understand that part of his life as well. Well, this is very interesting. I want to unpack a couple of those things really sure. quick. I mean, I'm sure we'll come back to some of these others later, too. But, but you know, first of all, I mean, I think it's very interesting. He was kind of a a mentoring pastor, you know, in that earlier time when we didn't have a formal system of theological education, but, but that mentoring, I think really meant a lot. Not everybody had that gift. Right. Right. So um, that's, that's most intriguing. And, and the other thing I think is interesting is that, you know, you use the word curmudgeon, like that to kind of describe him at the end, but but we tend to always focus on the history that is the warm fuzzies, Brian, right? I mean, the, the feel-good history. And, and I'm glad you have that in this book. I mean, he made a significant contribution with his understanding of the sanctuary. But, but he did have some very strange ideas towards the end and, 
and fell out of favor, like you said. So, I mean, that, that's part of the challenge of history is not only telling the, the niceties, but sometimes maybe the foibles, the flaws. And that, that to me gives a sense of authenticity as I, as I read your biography. Well, thank you. I think that many of our pioneers were crusty old saints. Uh, <laughs> their hearts may have been in the right place, but their uh, personalities and characters and temperaments sometimes clashed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and this this is part of doing history, right? So is we don't, uh, and, and and I think good history at least, you know, not 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 any history is perfect, but but an attempt to try to to be as objective as possible. So, um, so you mentioned a couple of things, but you know, when you're working on a biography, there's the things you already know. Uh, when I read your biography, the thing I already knew about Hiram Edson is the sanctuary thing, right? Mm -hmm. the, this is what he's famous for. But but then you also discover these other things you didn't expect to find, the curmudgeon part <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> Tell us some more of the things that surprised you in, as you're doing the research. Um, I don't want you to give your whole biography away, but, but tell us a, a few teasers here. Well, I tell you, it's one of the things I enjoy most about research is mm -hmm. the surprises. You just never know, you know, when you pick up the next source, the next letter, the next diary, uh, what you're going to find. And mm -hmm. some of these finds are truly delightful and, and serendipitous. Mm -hmm. uh, I discovered, for example, in doing my geographical research, that Hiram Edson lived four miles from the home of Joseph Smith. Yep. They were neighbors. And here are two men having supernatural experiences with beings they claim to be angels. Now, Hiram Edson doesn't name the angel that he met in his barn, but mm -hmm. of course, Smith does. He calls him Moroni. So here are two men almost within shouting distance of each other in mm -hmm. New York. Um, I discovered that Edson wrote numerous articles and a couple of tracts on prophetic symbols and timelines. But to my surprise, not a single article or pamphlet focusing on the meaning of the heavenly sanctuary. Or the now that is really shocking. That was shocking, shocking, Brian. Because we give him that credit. Mm -hmm. But it really belongs to O.R.L. Crozier, his contemporary. Yeah. I also discovered that Hiram Edson, like my earlier New York biography friend, John Byington, mm -hmm. was a Methodist, an abolitionist, and an anti-Mason. So those three streams come together in Edson. And so, so unpack that for just a second, because yeah. uh, the Methodist, that's pretty easy. We get, we get sure. that. The abolitionist against slavery, that's a that's we're starting to have that little clearer lens thanks to some people like Kevin Burton and others who are doing research on you know how incredibly active our early pioneers were as abolitionists in the abolitionist movement and so on so that actually doesn't surprise me even before I read your biography um, and and then what might be a, a little less familiar for people is the whole anti-mason thing Brian can can you just like give us the cliff notes like unpack that for a second okay in the uh, in the 1820s there was a political movement that arose called the anti-masonic movement it was particularly strong in upstate new york the burned over district mm -hmm. it stems from an incident in which a man named henry morgan an ex an ex mason 
mm -hmm. threatened to divulge the secrets of the Masonic uh, group, society, and they allegedly captured him and uh, drowned him in the uh, uh, Niagara Falls area. And uh, from that reaction to that violent uh, uh, movement, uh, the anti-Masonic movement arose, and it lasted for about 20 years, 1820s, 1830s, into the early 1840s. Uh, there was an anti-Masonic party that fielded local and state uh, candidates. Uh, John Byington was strongly anti-Mason. Uh, yeah. Edson strongly anti-Mason. I think that filtered into our early denominational uh, gene pool uh, that we do not uh, favor uh, secret societies. And I think it's part of that larger milieu of, of that yeah. context. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. Tell us some more. <laughs> well, uh, I also discovered that Hiram Edson uh, was present for at least four of Ellen White's visions. Uh, he took notes on those visions and he shared those notes uh, with Ellen White and she used those notes to refresh her memory about those four visions, uh, which took place in various, various places throughout New England. Um, I discovered, and I don't know the reasons for all of this, but I discovered that some of Hiram and Esther's children became Seventh-day Adventist and married Adventist spouses, while others of their children did not. And mm. that, of course, was the case with uh, John Byington as well. You win some, you lose some along the way. Uh, and then, of course, as we mentioned already, discovering that Edson was considered a, a curmudgeon in the Yeah, 70s. such a great word. No, <laughs> there were those who actually questioned his orthodoxy and his orthopraxy uh, mm. toward the end of his life, even though he was an ordained minister. Mm -hmm. uh, he did for a while stop attending church, although uh, he never opposed the Adventist church or its, or its teachings. And so in my final uh, chapter about Edson's legacy, chapter 12, I explore how Edson fell out of favor and how he today is back in favor. And I would say the main reason is Arthur W. Spaulding. What yeah. Spaulding does in his books is basically rehabilitate Hiram Edson's uh, curmudgeonly reputation. He downplays the negative and he upbuilds uh, Edson's positive contributions. Interesting. So I kind of wonder, you're making me think, you know, as, as, as you're mentioning that the, like the 1920s and 30s, he would have been like a, we might say a forgotten pioneer, but if I'm hearing you right, Spalding is rehabilitating his, his uh, story within the broader Adventist historiography. I also wonder if, you know, people that were challenging the sanctuary doctrine, I'm thinking all the way into the 60s and 70s, that's, that's about the time, you know, the, through the early 80s when the church really is developing a whole bunch of apologetics back against Desmond Ford and, and Adventist historic properties. That's when they buy this property. So, you know, it makes me wonder, part of our historiography is also um, autobiography, right? It's part of, you know, I, I find that intriguing. I think the two go together. I mean, the purchase of the Hiram Edson site in 1982, mm -hmm. uh, the year, uh, 
It not only helps to rehabilitate Hiram Edson's reputation, but also helps to focus attention on the sanctuary message on the yeah. location. So, all right, I want to get into this whole vision thing with, with angels. Edson doesn't mention the name of the angel, but but this has actually been the focus of um, some scholarly debate. You know, was it a vision? Was it a vision? You know, was it, was it a, you know, what was this? You know, and, and so now you've looked at all these sources and then the historiography of it later on. Um, give us some clarity on this. <laughs> well, I tell you, I, I do try to avoid the word vision. Um, yeah. Because Hiram himself, never referred to his cornfield experience as as a vision right um, i also don't believe that hiram was a visionary in the traditional sense of the word like ellen white i believe he was charismatic okay that's the term i prefer uh to use mm -hmm. hiram had a special word that he used for these experiences and i i do detail four of them uh mm -hmm. in my book uh, he called them presentments. Now, I had not heard that word before. Um, I was familiar with the word presentiment with the letter I in the middle. Mm -hmm. It's a negative, threatening, foreboding kind of experience. If you mm -hmm. have a presentiment that something's going to happen, it's usually bad. But Hiram Edson used the word presentment without the I in the middle. Uh, meaning a vivid portrayal of some future event which he expected would soon be fulfilled. So I believe that what happened to him in the cornfield, he would not identify as a vision, but as a presentment. A presentment. You have to remember, he wrote a pamphlet in 1845 predicting Christ's soon return in May yeah. of 1845. So to him, whatever he saw in the cornfield, October 23, 1844, would have been a presentment of something he expected to see happen within mm. the next few months. Therefore, short term for him. So I don't. I wouldn't call him a visionary. I don't believe he was a, a prophet. Mm -hmm. uh, and as we mentioned already, he does not spend a lot of time explicating the heavenly sanctuary services, that that was primarily left up to others. In right. chapter nine in my book, I mentioned the key individuals in the 1850s who explicate the heavenly sanctuary and its services, cleansing, investigative judgment, and so forth, are O.R.L. Crozier, mm -hmm. Edson's companion, right. White, J.N. Andrews, Uriah Smith, Charles Sperry, and Elon Everts. So Hiram Edson really, you know, is not focusing on, on the heavenly sanctuary. All that he claims to have understood after October 23, 1844 was, number one, the sanctuary is in heaven, not mm -hmm. on this earth. Number two, there are two parts to the sanctuary, the holy yeah. place and the most holy place. Number three, he saw Christ entering the second place, the most holy place, October 22, 1844. He did not know a whole lot more than that after October 22. He and Crozier and Hahn had to study it out for a good many months before they came to any further understanding. 
Well, very interesting. I mean, again, it shows you, I think, the the complexity of, of somebody like him, right? And yeah. uh, and everything else. So, um, and and by the way, you you mentioned charismatic. Not only you know thinking in terms of a presentment, uh, but but also in terms of some of his worship, mm-hmm. and 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 I, you know, if if Hiram Benson came to church. I suspect there might be a lot of Adventists today that might be just a little bit uncomfortable, Brian. What do you think? I think Hiram Edson was cut out of the same mold as Ellen White when it comes to his Methodism. I I think Hiram could be described as a shouting Methodist. Okay, that's what I was going to ask. Was he a shouting Methodist? Okay. I've never seen that word applied to him. Mm-hmm. But the charismatic meetings that Hiram and Esther held in their home mm-hmm. uh, were very much, um, I think, what we today would consider to be uh, much more emotional, much more charismatic. Yeah, I I always like the word ecstatic as yes. a way to describe yeah. it because because yeah. there is a later actual charismatic movement, or you know, the early twentieth century, and sometimes people might get you know, confused with that, you know, uh, but but that's that's to say that, you know, they're, they're very dynamic and very, you know, being prostrate on the floor and and uh, enthusiastic, maybe waving hands and being slain in the spirit and and things like that, as I understand. Is that right, Brian? I would agree. I would agree. I, I think Hiram Edson and Esther, particularly in their what we would call cottage meetings, their own home meetings. Uh, It was very rousing. Uh, We know that some of his neighbors sat on the hillsides uh, around their home to listen to them sing. So it was very rousing music that they sang. Uh, We know that it aroused opposition in my book, Mm -hmm. as you know, with some pretty pretty nasty incidents in in which people um, physically attacked Hiram Edson and his meetings. Yes, they could generate strong responses, uh, evocative. Yeah. So, 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 tell us about him as a person. What was you know his actual life? You know, um, some highlights that again for those that might not be as familiar with his story. Um, tell us, tell us that kind of you know who who was he as as just a as a, as a human being, right? Well, I would certainly use the word courageous. Uh, Referring again to the incident I just alluded to a moment ago, there -hmm. were about 40 men who stormed into his home during one of these meetings intending to lynch any of the Millerite Adventists they could get their hands on. And Hiram Edson confronted them alone, personally. Mm. He quoted a couple of Old Testament scriptures, and he calmed them down and he moved them out the front door. Uh, (laughs) That certainly took courage, you know, to confront an angry mob of, he says, about 40 men. And that that happened, I think it was December of 1844. Uh, Another word I would use for him is collegial. Mm. Uh, Once again, uh, he was chosen by James and Ellen White as a trainee of younger ministers, such as Leprow, and mm-hmm. Andrews, but he was also very collegial to work with the older ministers like Bates and Byington in extending 
the boundaries of, of Adventism. So he's a collegial individual. Uh, as our comments, yours and mine have already indicated, I would also describe him as complicated. Uh, <laughs> he definitely was not a simple sheep farmer. <laughs> right. <laughs> Although that's how he would describe himself in the federal censuses that I've looked at. Uh-huh. Um, he, um, he became a charismatic. Uh, he had presentments. He was a deep-thinking symbologist. Mm -hmm. uh, who loved to parse the Old Testament uh, for any contemporary applications of any, uh, any symbol he could squeeze out of the Old Testament. Uh, a numerologist, mm -hmm. uh, he, uh, he covered the traditional timelines, you know, the 70 weeks, uh, 1260 uh, days, 2300 days, but, but then he loved to go deeper into the 1290 day prophecy, the 1,335-day prophecy, and, and then one of his favorites, uh, the 2,520-day prophecy, which he actually squeezed out seven different articles on in the uh, Advent Review. So he's a complicated man. And um, finally, um, another C word, curmudgeon here. I think his heart's <laughs> in the right place throughout his life. But he yes. was a crusty old saint in the 1870s. Uh, he quit going to church for a while. He um, actually wrote a 200-page manuscript, handwritten, mm -hmm. on the role of England in end-time prophecy, which he took from a very obscure text in Jeremiah about a lion, and he took the lion to be the symbol of Great Britain. Mm -hmm. The Review and Herald Reading Committee refused to publish it. Mm. You publish all of it or publish none of it. And Hiram Edson even mentioned that manuscript in his final will and testament, 1882. So very end of his life, he's still holding on, hoping that his wife, Esther, will get that published. <laughs> he's got a special, special light that he wants to, to share. <laughs> yes. That's how we know that. Uh, dear Brother Edson, we love you, but, but maybe, <laughs> maybe not. Not this special light. <laughs> it's it, it's funny you, you mentioned him because Bates was doing the same kind of stuff around the 1850s. Yes. And I always find that kind of interesting. You know, he's looking at the seven spots of blood in Leviticus. Yes. Here's Hiram over here, you know, calculating out the 2520. I, I did some work at um, at uh, Center for Adventist Research on Bates's Bible. He was yes. doing all the same math yes. in the back of the Bible. You know, a yes. lot of these numbers are all the same kind of thing. Do you think there's a lot of crossover between those two guys? It's kind of two old stalwarts. Absolutely, 100%. In fact, in my chapter on um, speculative theologian, chapter eight, mm -hmm. I draw parallels between Miller, Litch, Fitch, Himes, and Bates on the one hand, and yeah. Edson on the other. Edson is mirroring their techniques, their methodology, their choice of time prophecies, their symbolism. Yeah, Edson is, and he's very close to Joseph Bates, Edson is. I mean, they, they took long treks together, hundreds of miles together. So yes, I believe Bates has a very strong influence on Hiram Edson in this manner. Yeah, because as I was reading uh, your article in Spectrum on it, the, the prophecies specifically that he was looking at mirror a lot of the private studies uh, that Bates was publishing in 
you know, the sanctuary symbols and, and his own pamphlets at the same time frame. So yep. that's an interesting connection there. Yep, I agree. Was he going into a lot of the unusual symbols like in Ezekiel, Brian? I, I can't remember. You have to, uh, but I, I, I've been rereading I, through yes. Miller and he really goes into Ezekiel yes. a lot. Yes. That's why I say uh, Hiram Edson can find symbols behind every Bible bush. <laughs> he, 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 he can explicate some symbols that you and I would never even think of. Um, he reminds me very much, another one of my books is a biography of Claude Brousson, a 17th century Huguenot pastor. And Claude Brousson loved doing that. It was like a game, you know, to, to find symbols in the Old Testament and then explicate parallels to the current situation of the Huguenots in 17th century mm -hmm. France. Well, Hiram Edson's doing exactly the same thing. He's taking yep. Old Testament symbols and then he's paralleling them with current problems and challenges in the Millerite and Sabbatarian Adventist experience. Yeah. Well, I would honestly say we're uh, perhaps following that tradition even today in quite a few of our judges. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, this this plays into your work on on the history of hermeneutics, Greg. Yeah, yeah, exactly, because I'm watching the same traditions as they just kind of morph between cultural events and world issues. We're all we're all kind of looking at the newspapers and our Bible in the same hand. The time. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Well, Brian, you've mentioned Esther a couple of times now, I think. And I mean, he's he's got a context, too, with his family, his uh, parents and children. Tell us more about them. Well, uh, I think it's worth noting, and I do note this in my biography, that Hiram Edson was descended from three of the signers of the Mayflower Compact in 1620, and five of his great uncles fought in the American Revolution. So given this distinguished bloodline, he was actually qualified to join the General Society of Mayflower Descendants but that wasn't formed until 1897, 15 years after he died. And he was actually qualified to join the National Society of the Sons of the American Revolution, but that wasn't established till 1889, seven years after he died. Hiram's father, Luther Edson, uh, was a soldier in the War of 1812. And so he comes from a very distinguished, patriotic, military, uh, line of service. In 1830, at the age of 24, Hiram married Effa Chrysler in a Methodist ceremony, and they had three children, George, Susan, and Belinda. But Effa died of unknown causes in 1839. She was only 28. So like most men of that era, Hiram married within a few months because he had three young children that needed a mother, he married Esther Mariah Persons uh, in another Methodist service. And they had three children, uh, via Ophelia, whose correspondence uh, we, we have some at least, uh, but she, I, I say via Ophelia, the first via Ophelia died at 13 months. They had another daughter, they also named via Ophelia, and that's the one whose correspondence uh, we have in part. So they named the second daughter after the first, and then a third daughter, Lucy Jane. 
By the time Hiram Edson died in 1882 then, he had enjoyed the company of two wives, six children, and 12 grandchildren, whose names are entered in his Bible, which uh, today is in the uh, Loveland University collection. Very interesting, very interesting. Yeah, it makes me kind of wonder. Uh, go ahead, Greg. Oh, no, no, keep on, keep your thought. No, I was just thinking, you know, a young woman who dies, uh, if she yeah. complications from a pregnancy or something like that, or tuberculosis, I mean, the the it just disease was so rampant that that really wasn't that unusual. But uh, anyways, Greg, you were going to say something. Yeah, I was kind of wondering, Dr. Strayer, what with with the the Wesleyan charismatic charismatic stuff uh, behind both Ellen as well as as uh, Edson here. How do you feel the church handled some of his charismatic um, stuff compared to hers in the later years? Because you did mention in the Spectrum article a healing uh, that was mentioned, you know, where he resisted the the call of the Spirit to kind of go and heal this particular guy, but then you know relented and had this amazing moment. How how do you think the church has handled the early moments of that uh, versus some of the later ones? Because I remember a, a a fun quote from Ellen White in 1906 where she talked about how in the early days there was a lot more of these kind of charismatic events, but they couldn't really talk about it as much at, at that point in history. So I kind of wondered how much of that played into his curmudgeonly aspect uh, later on in, in life, do you think? Well, I think one of the... Uh... One of the metaphors that I develop uh, for Hiram uh, at the end of his life is a uh, metaphor that he didn't really leave the church. I think the church left him. The church that Hiram was most familiar with was the, was the movement of, of 1844 to 1860 or thereabouts. He was more comfortable, I think, in the developing movement uh, with local congregations, with uh, expanding frontiers, with exploring new theology. I, th I think once uh, you know we got our fundamental principles nailed down, what was it, 1872? Mm -hmm. Uriah Smith uh, kind of lists the fundamental principles of the church. After 1872, you know, the church begins to take uh, institutional shape. A lot of institutions are formed. Uh, we've got the conferences, the general conference and so forth. I think that Hiram Edson, like Samuel Adams, is not too comfortable at that point. You know, John Adams goes on to be president of the United States, but his cousin, Sammy Adams, does not fill an institutional role. He's not comfortable. And I think Hiram mm -hmm. Edson is a Sam Adams in the church. He's less comfortable with an organized, disciplined, institutionalized church with a fundamental belief system nailed down. He, he would rather light, write articles to the review, you know, exploring his symbols exploring <laughs> prophetic timelines and get reactions from the beloved from the believers you know yeah but that's not what's happening in the 1870s and 80s anymore they're kind of battening down the theological hatches right yeah he doesn't fit. yeah yeah 
Yeah. Including the one that uh, Pandora's Boxy opened with the whole sanctuary, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and, and I think that helps make sense of, of her statement because I always found that little interview she did in, in Oakwood talking about how you couldn't, we couldn't talk as much about those early ecstatic experiences these days. That helps make some sense of it because his generation, and even in a way her generation, is developing past some of the, the, uh, the, the open exploratory theology and experiences of that generation they're moving past it and and yeah that, that kind of helps make some sense of both him and her then yes yes yeah. institutionalizing well i want to come back to the book uh brian tell us yeah. the story behind the book why this particular book how tell us the story how this biography came about well as you earlier alluded to there is a pattern in the biographies that I write. Um, Jay and Loughborough came from Victor, New York, which is just a few miles south of Rochester. Mm -hmm. John Byington was from Northern New York, St. Lawrence County up near Canada. And Hiram Edson comes from the Erie Canal area, east of Rochester, just a few miles north of Waterloo, New York, where I was born and raised. So I'm doing the New York boys here. Um, I have chosen three of our pioneers about whom we had no biographies. Um, and um, I feel a kinship as an upstate New York Yankee uh, to, to them. Now, as far as Hiram's concerned, there had never been even a children's book on him. Uh, it's really so, is shocking, Brian, that yeah, really for someone, yeah. Truly really is. There never even been a children's book on Hiram Edson. So there was a, a, a significant lacuna in Adventist scholarship on, on Hiram Edson there. And then uh, third, as I, I go into greater detail on this in my preface, I think Arthur W. Spaulding knew more than he said. When I read the correspondence, and we have his correspondence at the Center mm -hmm. for Adventist Research, the letters that, that he wrote in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s to uh, L.E. Froome and, and Thurber and, and, and Maxwell and, and Wilcox and other leading right. church figures, he knew more than he was able to say in his books. Yeah, You know, Review and Herald of that era, Pacific Press of that era, had kind of a self-imposed, well, I would use the word censorship. There were things that Spaulding wanted to say that he knew he couldn't say. And, and one of his famous quotes was that the Adventist pioneers were more like horseflesh than angels. <laughs> wow. I'm That's not heard that <laughs> He got an angry letter from Maxwell about that. Good old Uncle Arthur didn't <laughs> like that phrase. So, so would you Spaulding knew more than he was able to say. And that kind of uh, spurred me on to say what, what uh, Spaulding couldn't say in this book. And then I want to give a shout out to a, to a man that, that nobody uh, knew, I suppose, outside of Rochester, New York. His name is Robert Allen. He, um, he died at 92 or 93. He was a civil engineer. He was a faithful member of the Rochester Bay Knoll Seventh-day Adventist Church. And he was a passionate 
collector of materials concerning hieromancy, a whole box full of materials regarding Hiram Edson's land purchases, his genealogy, uh, any mention of him in local newspapers. I mean, mm -hmm. th this man collected for decades. And his son, Jim, uh, Jim Allen, uh, Academy uh, student friend of mine, passed that box along to me. Uh, he, he told me when he did that, he said, Brian, I've tried to get rid of this box of materials on Hiram Edson for years. But every time I bring it up, he said, all I get is glassy stares. I said, you won't get a glassy stare from me. <laughs> <laughs> I said, I want every scrap in that box. And I have used every scrap in that box in my book. Ah, and beautiful. that's why... The dedication page mm -hmm. states, dedicated to the memory of Robert H. Allen, 1923 to 2018. I was wrong. I see he was 95. Zealous amateur historian whose private collection of Edson materials filled many gaps in this biography. So that Very was nice. really the final spark. Yeah. I remember meeting him at the Bainold Church years ago. They did one wow. of these sanctuary history mm. celebrations and there at the Pyramidson property and what a passion he had for, for many years. So I, I think that's a shout out to people who um, have those burdens for collecting and have local collections of historical materials. And we may have some people listening and saying, I, I've got a box up in the attic and and if you do, uh, Indiana Jones, Greg Howell, and Michael Campbell will come and uh, very happily, happily <laughs> uh, let us know. We we love to hear uh, stories about uh, materials that that uh, that people may have just sitting around in a box like that, right, Brian? Yes, we uh, and we, we will. And we, what's that, Greg? We will drive to you. I will make the, the drive the to move. you. Yeah. <laughs> we, we want to see these things preserved in places like the Center yeah. for Amethyst Research, where I happen to have a little personal bias in North American Division archives, right? So, but yeah. uh, I'm less concerned about where, and as long as these materials get preserved in some way, so that historians like Brian Strayer here <laughs> uh, have the ability to, you know, have this can be the catalyst for a major new contribution to Amethyst history. Well, we uh, professional historians most definitely appreciate the uh, amateur collectors, the amateur. It's everybody like uh, working together, right? Yeah. yeah. We're, we're never everywhere. I've just, even this summer, like we mentioned, two or three people have been sending me stuff and they're clearing out houses, you know, of older relatives that don't have any, they don't know what to do, but they notice, hey, this looks old. I'm getting stuff like that all the time. And it's, it's those people who save it for us because we can't get it all. That's right. That's right. The uh, these great collections. By the way, I was at the Smithsonian earlier, and and one of the reasons we have the collections at the Smithsonian, there's a thing. How do the collections of the Smithsonian exist? Um, a lot of those collections are thanks to personal collectors who accumulate a significant collection and then bequeath that as a legacy uh, for the people of the United States through the Smithsonian and those those special collections that the people that have a passion for collecting or finding these things um, and, and many different ways, not just in Adventist history that that is how these legacies and how these how, how these things happen. So um, and so 
Uh, before we, you know, I want to make sure we talk about how you can get a copy of your book, but, you know, and I think we've talked about this already, curmudgeon, you know, he's got some <laughs> wacky ideas, his legacy, but I think maybe, you know, it, it, you know, this is a podcast on Adventist historiography, doing these deep dives in Adventist history. That's why we call it Adventist pilgrimage, right? We're, we're trying to really reflect in a, in a deep way, but um, let's talk about the historiography about this for a minute. We've talked about Spalding, but uh you know the the horse flesh and everything else um you know how we do history matters and and this week is is kind of significant because you know uh, a famous adventist historian who was very controversial ron numbers just passed away right so um you know this is uh and so and, and I know our listeners are going to be, you know, that it's a polarizing even just to mention his name, because some are going to be like, you know, he's a heretic. Other people are going to say, well, he, he was a saint. And, and probably there's a little bit of, of tension somewhere between those two extremes. Right. right. But, but how we do history, how we interpret it matters. So reflect it with us just a little bit more about the historiography interpretation of, of Edson before we wrap up. Uh, one of the one of the surprises I discovered that I had not known before is that from the time of Edson's death in mm -hmm. 1882 until the 1940s, there is virtually no mention of Hiram Edson's name whatsoever in in Adventist literature. Uh, yeah. Not in the Advent Review and Sabbath Herald, not in the Union Papers, not in uh, children's books about Adventist pioneers. He's virtually forgotten. For 60 mm -hmm. years. And yeah. then along comes Arthur W. Spaulding. And in the 1940s and 50s and 60s, uh, what he does is basically revive and rehabilitate Edson's yeah. reputation. His, his three key books are Footsteps of the Pioneers, that's 1947, mm -hmm. Captains yeah. of the Host, yeah. that's 1949. And Origin and History of Seventh-day Adventists. That's a four-volume set. Right. And Hiram Edson's name comes up frequently in volume one, which was published in 1961. And mm. so he devotes several paragraphs to detailing the early accomplishments of Hiram Edson in the 1840s and 50s, particularly. Mm -hmm. um, and finally, I would say that today, or at least since 1982, the Adventist Historic Properties Group, now known as Adventist Heritage Ministries, uh, their efforts to establish a visitor center, uh, to move the Luther Edson barn, uh, to uh, build a model of the earthly sanctuary, to establish the Bible prophecy trail and garden on the site of Hiram and Esther Edson's former farm in Port Gibson has immensely uh, boosted Hiram Edson's reputation and focused attention on the sanctuary message as well. I, I end my last chapter in my book on Hiram Edson by asserting that if he could come alive today, Hiram Edson would be shocked mm. at the positive, glowing, reputation that he now has uh, among conservative uh, traditional Adventists in the church. That was not the reputation he had when he died in 18. Right. So it would be a big surprise to him to see how famous he is. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's like a generation had to forget him to remember that he was a good guy. 
Like, yeah, that's right. That's right. It's interesting with history. Some people, you know, during their lifetime, they aren't famous, but but then the story later grows, or or that you know, as 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 interest uh, changes over time, and uh, I, I think that's also very very significant. And having worked a little bit with Adventist Heritage Ministries in the past, you know, I I also know, like for example. I think uh, Joellen and Lewis Walton, you know, he was a yeah. big time supporter, continues to be. They, they continue to be big time supporters. But I think that they were a catalyst for purchasing that property. Yeah. And I also know that they were very concerned by the church with Des Ford and the sanctuary and everything else. So I do think these kinds of things that were shaping Adventism in the 70s and 80s, you know, contributed again to yeah. this kind of right. starting to to. To, for people to care enough to actually purchase that property and 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 tell that story, right? So I agree. I agree. Yes, they were key individuals. Many of the articles that I've read uh, are are by those those two individuals. Those I also guys. noticed is Spalding some of his papers and stuff. I mean, I haven't spent the time that you have, but but he also had some personal relationship with uh, with one not personal relationship in any other than just he had he he knew and corresponded with at least one of Edson's one of his daughters, I think, that helped supply him with material and information. And sometimes, you know, just like this box was saved by uh, Robert Allen, yeah. I wonder if also his having a connection and some historic materials and stories that were through the family that ended up he he had that somehow had that connection and and maybe just like that was a catalyst for your book maybe that was a catalyst for him to write about him i wonder yeah via ophelia mm -hmm. back in the I second one it was about 1910 mm -hmm. corresponded corresponded with him and shared some of that original manuscript Mm -hmm. uh, as I develop in my book, uh, apparently most of those 200 pages were destroyed. Uh, Esther, Esther Edson allegedly burned them, but she saved about 12 pages, which was the, I would describe it as autobiographical material on Edson's experiences in 1843 and 44. And it's from that material that mm -hmm. Arthur W. Spaulding wrote an article in the uh, Youth Instructor in 1910. Okay. Later articles in the Adventist Review and, of course, his books. So, yeah, he had, uh, he did have direct contact with uh, via Ophelia. Is that where that higher medicine manuscript that's kind of incomplete, did, did that come from her too, do you yeah. think? Yes, yes. It apparently came through her. Her mother passed it along when Esther died a few years after her husband, she passed that manuscript on to Viophilia, and mm -hmm. Viophilia took it with her to Florida and then to Texas. It, it had a perambulatory route before it finally found its way, I think, through Froome back to Washington, D.C. Yeah. in the 1950s. Yeah. Interesting. Well, I know Froome and Spaulding were close. Mm -hmm. friends and uh Spaulding was kind of Froome's mentor in many ways yeah. and so that's that's very interesting it's, there's always these connections and personal relationships well before we're done uh how does one get a copy of your book Brian well thank you thank you for uh bringing that up actually there are two ways 
Uh, one way is to order it from the publisher, which is Oak and Acorn. Okay. okay. And they have a website and everything. They Well, I would recommend uh, contacting the director. That's a small press. There are only about four people working there. Alberto Valenzuela. So it's Alberto, period, Valenzuela at AdventistFaith.org. So he's giving or, these away for free then? That's what? He's giving these away for free? Uh, no, no, he's oh, selling. Okay. Oh, okay. I just want to make sure people know if they email <laughs> yes. him, you know, they're not. Yes. Don't expect and a free copy. The other, way buy this. Be, the other way would be to order it from Amazon. Amazon. Okay. Um, I think they're selling it for about uh, $12 plus postage and handling. Now, I think they're they usually Oak and Acorn, not like instantly, but usually most of their books they put on Kindle after a short amount of time, too. Oh, okay. So okay. uh, if you're listening to that, I, I mean, I, this is hot off the press. We're talking hot off the press. So if you're yeah. listening to this, that's what we love to do with Adventist Pilgrimage Podcast. If there's a major new book in Adventist history, we want you to hear about it first from, from Adventist Pilgrimage Podcast. But uh, yeah, definitely check that out. Uh, and usually after a short amount of time, uh, I, I think pretty much all the titles imprints from, from Oak and Acorn you can get them on, on digital form. So, so watch for that, listeners. Uh, you want to make sure, and if you want a print copy, absolutely, you can order that from Alberto at Oak and Acorn or Amazon. And then uh, last but not least, uh, Brian, what's, what's next? I know Union Springs Academy, we talked about that at the beginning, but... Uh, <laughs> well, uh, yes. Um, when you get your wits about you. <laughs> when I get my wits about me, yes. Well, you know, I've just finished 260 pages on Ira Metzen. Yeah. And 450 pages on Union Springs Academy. So at the age of 73, uh, that, that's been quite a challenge. I have been told by two or three Adventist scholars that there is a need for a biography of Joseph Harvey Wagoner. Now, the question is, was he born in New York, Brian? No, no. See, that puts him outside my New York circle. So uh oh, think about this one. I don't know about this. <laughs> the outlier. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he does have some ministry connections in New York in the 1860s, um, and he is involved with the infamous uh, Nathan Fuller scandal, uh, mm -hmm. writing against him. But, um, you know, he he's Wisconsin, I think, for the most part. He's a Midwesterner. But uh, as the father of Ella J. Wagoner, uh, mm -hmm. You know, we know a good deal about E.J. Wagner of 1888 fame, but we don't have much at all on uh, Joseph Harvey, his father, uh, who was an editor, who was a missionary to uh, Switzerland, uh, who was a writer and publisher of pamphlets and books. Mm -hmm. so I don't know. I, I will ask uh, my friend George Knight what he thinks about that. Okay, because I'm not sure. I think you need a New Yorker. I was hoping you'd go for a woman like Sarah uh, Lindsay because oh. there's still not a single biography in this series about a woman. And I think that's a travesty, Brian. This and you've done so much work on Sarah Lindsay. I have. I have. I love I love her dearly. I have been to her territory. I've been to Ulysses, Pennsylvania. I've stood by her grave. I've seen her home in uh, Wellsville, New York. Mm -hmm. uh, I preached from a pulpit she preached from in Wellsville Adventist Church, the uh, 1905. 
Yeah, I, I'm not sure we've got enough to scrape together. That would be the problem on Sarah Lindsay. This is um, the challenge with, with doing history, isn't it? Sometimes it you wish there was more. You know, I, I know of no diaries. You know, if we just had some diaries, that would be great. I know so, of no so, diaries. So maybe somebody listening will have a box in their attic, just like Robert Allen did, had this box and right. has a box of diaries and letters and it, it's just waiting. And that might be the catalyst, the tipping point to get Brian to write there you a biography go. on Sarah Lindsay. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Wonderful. I'm glad you put she's, that out there. <laughs> she's out there somewhere. We'll find her. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm just saying, you know, I've got to put a plug out there for women in Adventist history. You know, Brian, you've always had a passion for, for helping to tell the stories of, of early Adventist women. Plus, we're trying to get a New Yorker there for you. So anyway, very, very good. Very yeah. Good. Anyways. Hey, it's been a delight, a pleasure. Thank you, Brian, for joining us on the so much, Pilgrimage podcast. It's 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 truly a delight. Your book is a valuable resource. Uh, if you love Adventist history and you've enjoyed this conversation, encourage you to, to just uh, purchase a copy. And, and this will be a valuable resource uh, that will be a, a great addition to uh, Adventist historiography. Brian, thanks so much again for Thank joining you, us for your uh, valuable scholarly uh, contributions. And uh, without any further ado, thanks for joining us uh, for another episode of Adventist Pilgrimage. Join us each month as we take a deep dive into our Adventist past. And Jesus himself said that he did not come to do away with the law. Take us out of this world if he does not want us to be contaminated by.